I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. So just for starters, this is the second in a four-part series that we're doing over here at Outside In. So if you're dropping into the middle of this story, might we recommend that you stop, go back, and listen to last week's episode? Yeah, everything will make a whole lot more sense. Test, test, test. Okay. This is Madame Marianne Hervieux. She's a member of the Pessimit, which is part of the Innu Nation. And this is the story she told us. When Marianne was young, she says she lived with her grandparents and her brother. Every year at the end of August, they would get into a big canoe and paddle up the Utard River toward Lake Pletipi. This was more than 250 miles of paddling against the current on a big, wild Canadian river. She says the trip included 24 sets of rapids and waterfalls. That means they had to pull the canoes over to the side of the river, get out, unpack all of their supplies, that's tents, cooking equipment, rifles, fishing gear, warm clothes, and carry them by hand upriver. Families headed inland for the winter would carry something like 900 pounds of gear. Every year, they did that 24 times as they made their trip upriver. Each of these portages were done on trails that had been established over millennia of living on the land. Generations of pessimists slowly creating paths that took them deeper and deeper into the wilderness. At the beginning of the trip, several families would caravan all together, but as they got further upstream, families would start to split off, each headed to their own trap lines, where they would spend the winter catching and eating big and small game. They didn't just pick their winter territories randomly. This was an ancestral home. Trap lines are passed down, inherited from parent to child. These territories always included water. 
a river or set of lakes that kept them fed with fish and served as highways for getting around. Marianne says this trip upriver took her and her family around a month and a half every year. In the spring, after the ice melted off the rivers, she says they would gather up the furs that they had accumulated during the winter and ride the rivers, now swollen with spring meltwater, all the way back down to the ocean. From there, it was a short paddle to their summer village, Pessimit, where the whole community would gather for the summer months to sell their furs to white fur traders. They would restock with ammunition and warm clothing for the next winter, all the while fishing for salmon, seal, and lamprey. This was the rhythm of Marianne's life, every year up and down the river. Shuffling from the silence and stillness of the winter hunting grounds, the place where she learned how to make snowshoes, where her grandparents broke with cultural norms and taught her to hunt and trap marten, caribou, moose, bear, and beaver, to the bustle of the summer village and trading post. Louis Archambault translated for us. She was uh, interested to, to, to be here, but it was far from, uh, the, the, uh, from being the best place uh, for her. I mean, the best place for her to live was up there at Lac Plitipi. That, uh, that, that was the place where she feel the best. Now, imagine starting up the river, the same way that you'd done with your grandparents your entire life, coming around a bend, and instead of the falls you were expecting, seeing the river diverted and a massive construction project underway. Imagine looking to the riverbank for the portage trail, those footpaths that had been carved out over the course of generations and finding many of them underwater. Where once you knew every rapid and riffle, every riverbend, and where to take your canoe out and put it in again, now everything is unfamiliar. That's exactly what happened to Marianne in the mid-1960s. She says she was in her 20s when the Utard River, the river she and her family had used for generations, was dammed. This is another pessimist elder, Edgar Saint-Ange, describing that time. Everything has, has been drowned. They lost uh, all their gears. Their camps were, were flooded. Uh, the, their equipment, for to hunting equipment, trapping equipment was flooded. Their canoes, uh, the, the nets to, to, to fish for, for, for living, for the living of their family. Everything was lost without any kind of compensation. I'm Sam Evans-Brown, and this is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. And I'm Hannah McCarthy, and you're listening to the second in a series called Powerline, stories about who has power, who wields it, and when you've got none, how do you take it? As we learned in the last episode, in the 50s and 60s, Quebec launched a huge political project to build a new provincially owned electric utility, Hydro-Quebec. That company built a massive fleet of dams in order to provide good jobs for French-speaking Canadians. But as it did this, it was flooding land. 
land that had been used by indigenous people for thousands of years. Today on Outside In, we've got stories from two groups of Native people that grappled with Hydro-Quebec. Two stories that end in very different ways. That dam Marianne Irvieu encountered out on the river, it was part of the Manic Outard complex, Hydro-Quebec's very first megaproject. We're talking about dams that flooded hundreds of square miles along two massive rivers, powering seven powerhouses which can generate electricity for more than a million people. But Hydro-Quebec never questioned one big assumption that their whole project rested on. Who owned the land that they were flooding? Most of Quebec is what we call crown land. That means it belongs to the province. This is David Schultz, the attorney for Pessimit. As far as the Canadian government was concerned, this land belonged to them. And since Hydro-Quebec is what we call in Canada a crown corporation, it's a, a monopoly owned by the, the government of Quebec, uh, the government of Quebec has no problem with its own company using its own land and rivers to, to build a hydro dam. But did the land really belong to them? I mean, there were Native people living here continuously for thousands of years before white European settlers arrived. Unsurprisingly, European colonization brought issues of land rights. As settlers started to spread west across Canada, like as they got into Ontario and Manitoba, treaties were signed that officially transferred land from Native people to the Canadian government. A lot of really problematic treaties, of course. However, in eastern Canada, a lot of settlement happened before that practice became common. There were no treaties. Native people had never signed their land rights away. And that, of course, means there's some Aboriginal rights there to be dealt with. The question would be, though, okay, if, but if you haven't taken surrender of those rights, how come you're allowed to go settle anyway, which is what, <laughs> which is what you know, the British and then Canada tended to do? And we don't have, like, a very clear answer to that because it would mean large parts of Canada are illegal. So, David argues, there's this open legal question about whose land Hydro-Quebec was building on, like constitutionally. And that brings us to the case he's working on. It goes back to this one story in 1972. The construction was wrapping up on that first mega project, and as part of building it, Hydro-Quebec was hoping to build a power line across Pessimit's reservation. The reservation, by the way, is the land that the federal government has explicitly set aside for the Pessimit. No debate here. This was clearly native land, but it's a tiny, tiny chunk of what they had traditionally used for hunting and trapping. Hydro-Quebec figured crossing the reservation rather than going around would save them about a million dollars. But this was not crown land. They had to negotiate. So the company reaches out, not to the pessimists themselves, but to the federal government. By law, Indian Affairs is the, is the intermediary in any transaction like this concerning reserve land. As intermediary, the Indian Affairs Department, now named Indigenous and Northern Affairs, was there to represent the pessimists in the negotiation, to act in their best interest. And let's just highlight how weird this is. Indian Affairs, a government agency, was negotiating with Hydro-Quebec, a crown corporation. 
So it was kind of like the government negotiating with the government over this question of native rights. If you're thinking, why didn't the Pessimit negotiate for themselves? Well, at this time, native people didn't have much in the way of their own bureaucracy set up to deal with stuff like this. A band council office in the late 60s, early 70s was like a desk and a telephone. When the negotiations started, the two parties were way far apart. Hydra's opening offer was a little more than $13,000. The Pessimit were looking for $2 million. Or free electricity forever. So they were at an impasse. But over at Indian Affairs, something else was going on. Between Hydro-Quebec and Indian Affairs, they come up with this brilliant idea because, you know, Hydro-Quebec wants to only... The federal bureaucrats who represented the band council told Hydro-Quebec they wanted at least $200,000. But Hydro-Quebec wanted to hold the line at 50 grand. So Indian Affairs proposes a compromise. And they say, okay, 50000 will be for crossing the reserve. And 150000 will be for any damage you did to, you know, Innu fishing along all these rivers when you were damming them and building your hydroelectric infrastructure. $200,000. The actual language of the agreement? This money was for all impacts of any hydro development. Not just on the tiny reservation, but all throughout the Pessimates' massive traditional territory. And the deal covered all damages, past, present, and future. The band council took the money and in the spring gave it out to every member of the Pessimate community. It equaled a cash payout to each individual of $116. That's like $500 U.S. dollars today. Well, it's, I have to say, even by the standards of, of the things I've seen, the agreement in 1973 that Indian Affairs negotiates for Pessimate with Hydro-Quebec is a bizarre story. It's not at all clear they have any idea that Indian Affairs is negotiating over their rights well beyond the reserve, you know, hundreds of miles beyond the reserve. Uh, and even if they did understand that, you don't get to deal with with Aboriginal title that way. Pessamit uh, did live with hydro development at a time where it was differently done. Those projects were done uh, uh, with, with, with the laws in place at the time and the practices at the time. That's Mathieu Boucher, manager of Hydro-Quebec's Aboriginal Affairs. I followed up with Hydro-Quebec on this point, and a spokesperson sent back the following in a statement. To the best of our knowledge, there are no recognized historical treaties concerning the Pessimate Innu that Hydro-Quebec may have violated. As part of its activities, Hydro-Quebec ensures that users of the territory are consulted and that their concerns are taken into consideration. Those are the last major projects that were done before James Bay and Norton Quebec Agreement. And James Bay and Norton Quebec Agreement really, really changed the way projects are done even in the whole country. The James Bay and Northern Quebec Agreement. Remember those words. Because in order to understand why the Pessimit are so upset about what happened to them, you have to hear another story about another Hydro-Quebec deal made just two years later. And this one went very, very differently. And we'll tell you that story after a break. 
Before we go any farther, I think we need some First Nations 101 here. Right, yeah. So we've been talking about the Pessimate. Pessimate is the name of the community, and the Pessimate are members of the Innu Nation and speak the Innu language. Innu, not Inuit. The Inuit are further north. So the Pessimate Innus. And now we're leaving the Pessimate Innus behind to talk about a different nation. The Crees, specifically the Eastern Crees. They live to the north of the Innus. Their reservations are hundreds, even thousands of miles apart. But if you look at their winter territories, where they would hunt and trap, they were basically neighbors. And this story starts with Robert Kanadawat. Uh, my name is Robert Kanadawat. I'm from uh, Chesapeake. Robert is getting on in years. He's in his 80s, soft-spoken, but opinionated. Well, people call me, I made history. Maybe maybe so, but, you know, I, I started it all. I was the first one that started this whole native um, movement. So Robert Kanadawat was chief of Chesapeake, a reservation which local people often abbreviate and call Chesapeake. And back in the early 70s, there was some really big news brewing, news that he didn't know anything about. One of the uh, one of the native people, uh, Philip Owashish, is my colleague. Apparently, he he happened to be down south at that time, and then he saw in the newspaper what uh, Hydro was planning to do with the North. This colleague wanted to get the word out. Well, at the at the very beginning, you know, we had a hard time about communication. At that time, we only had uh, what you call radio. So Philip Owashish starts a phone tree. And the message starts getting passed around, calling from chief to chief in the aid communities, leaving messages, trying to get the word out to folks who are out hunting on their family's traditional territory. He passed it on to someone, someone, to someone, someone, to someone, and someone, and all, all the way down the line. The news was big. The premier of Quebec had run on a platform of creating 100,000 new jobs. And part of his plan was to build the hydropower project of the century, spanning an area the size of France. In all, the proposal would divert nine rivers out of their channels and funnel most of them into a massive new reservoir. All of these rivers would flow into La Grande. That's the river that flows past Chesapeake. This was Hydro-Quebec's second megaproject. The James Bay Project. And so far, Hydro-Quebec was following the same game plan. No advanced notice for the Crees, the people actually living on these water bodies. So the chiefs all gathered for a big meeting. And right away, everybody talked about the land, trying to protect it because they're going to destroy what we lived on and what we survived on and so on, and what our ancestors uh, survived and uh, passed it on to, to our forefathers. The Crees decided to lawyer up. They united with the Inuit, whose land was also impacted by the proposal, and filed an injunction. As a matter of fact, the, the uh, court battle was, is in my name, uh, Robert Canadot versus uh, all and so on, you know. He says whenever he gets introduced to anyone who has studied Canadian law, they're a little starstruck. Yeah, I know. I know. I've seen his name, you know. (laughs) The Crees argued that these projects would significantly impact their traditional subsistence economy. The hunting and trapping, the traveling up and down rivers, the seasonal ebb and flow of a quasi-nomadic lifestyle. But more to the point, the Crees argued that this was their land. 
they had never signed it away in treaties with the Canadians, and they had been using it for thousands of years. And this is what, what made, made us fight, because we wanted to retain our identity as Native people, ones that, that lived off the land, and, and, and this is where we made our survival from. Hydro-Quebec argued that this way of life that the Crees said they were trying to protect didn't really exist anymore. They argued that the Crees now used snowmobiles, that they used chainsaws, that they ate toast. Yeah, this was actually an argument used in court, made by lawyers. In part, it was a strategy. Canadian law guarantees Native people the right to hunt and fish, to live this traditional lifestyle. So if Hydra-Quebec could prove this traditional lifestyle was no longer in practice, it could argue they had no right to stop the project. So the Crees called people off their trap lines. And then what we did, we brought in trappers. They testified. The trappers talked about how they lived and worked on the land, how they moved from place to place on their huge winter trap lines. Or in those days, people traveled by, by foot, by snowshoes, by dock team. Of course, it was also true that they used snowmobiles and float planes, too, and even that they ate toast sometimes. But this is kind of a weird argument when you think about it. It's like arguing that for a culture to exist, it can never change. It's like arguing that for Native people to be Native people, they have to agree to never adopt a new technology. And in the end, the Crees won the judge over. So they had to empty all the work sites. So all construction stopped for a week. That's Réal Corcel. Réal has watched this whole history develop from the other side of the negotiating table. He's worked for Hydro-Quebec for 42 years. So I started back in 1975. My role here is to negotiate agreement and see to their implementation with the Crees. You won the injunction and they stopped work? We won the injunction and we also knew that that, they're, that they would realize now that they can't just push, push us around. This decision landed like a thunderbolt. A Canadian judge had sided with Native people. He had stopped construction of the dam and acknowledged that the Crees had some sort of right to the land even hundreds of years after white settlers had moved in. Then the Court of Appeal just overturned the decision of the Superior Court but uh, imposing on the parties to negotiate an agreement. So construction did get underway again, but Hydro-Quebec had to sit down and cut a deal with the Crees. Violet Pachano was working as a secretary for the Grand Council when they got the first offer. She later went on to be chief of Chesapeake and deputy grand chief of the whole Grand Council. That's when they tabled the letter to the chiefs with an offer from... The premier of Quebec. So that was the beginning of, that was the first offer in the negotiation. Two-pager or (laughs) three-pager. How many pages was the final agreement? (laughs) Yeah, 200 pages maybe. (laughs) And remember, as they hammered out these negotiations, construction on the dams continued. So I think one of the basic things was, well, even if we continue fighting it, it's going to be built anyway. (laughs) So let's get what we can and do what we can, see how it goes. And in 1975, they reached a final deal. And it was massive. 
It was called the James Bay and Northern Quebec Agreement, and it was about much more than just the dams. It totally reimagined the relationship between the Canadian government, the Quebec government, and the Cree people. It created a whole new system of land management in the Cree territory and gave them a say in future development. It created a Cree school board and a board of health. What they say, you know, is that we weren't the owners of the land. You know, they kept saying that. And we said that we, uh, we, <laughs> we managed to, to, to convince that they are trespassing, you know, that they should pay for taking our land, our resources, our livelihood, and the way, the way we want to live. And then there was the money the straight-up compensation. Remember the Pessimate? They got $150,000 and forfeited all their rights to future damages caused by Hydro-Quebec's dams. In contrast, just two years later, the James Bay Agreement awarded the Crees $135 million. To put this another way, the Crees were paid 900 times what the Pessimate received. It's like where the Pessimate thought there was just a solid wall something that they would never get over, the Crees had come along right after them and put in a key and opened the door. But this whole story, even for the Crees, it left raw feelings. Cree leaders would later say, negotiating this deal while the dams were still under construction, it was like cutting a deal with a gun to your head. They signed the James Bay and Northern Quebec Agreement under duress. And... That that's that's the case. Uh, you got you went in court. You the court overturned uh, the decision, and it's it's and and until then, it's 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 a, a fact. But the good thing of it, we have all learned about that, and we are not doing things the same way that we have done in '75. And those raw feelings, they are especially concentrated in one place, the community of Chesapeake, where Robert Kanatawat was chief. We could still feel it when we visited this summer, nearly 45 years later. Chesapeake, you, you could have seen it. You went to Chesapeake. Chesapeake, uh, it could, how to say, they, they will never love Hato Quebec. That's for sure. Never. <laughs> it will take generation and generation. In the end, what do these two stories tell us? To a certain extent, it's just that history is kind of random and fickle. Here's David Schultz again, the pessimist's lawyer. So I guess I guess what I would ask is like, you know, if we compare what the 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 pessimist got versus what the Cree got. Like, how can we explain the contrast between these two deals? Ah, uh, that is a great question <laughs> of, of Quebec law and politics. How can we explain that the Cree have the James Bay Northern Quebec Agreement and that all sorts of other First Nations in Quebec have have just uh, their, their little Indian Act reserves and their little uh, Indian Affairs budgets um, because they didn't get an injunction, because they weren't... <clears throat> They didn't have the potential to block the project of the century because because they weren't uh, in court and fighting as quite as hard in quote the same way at quite the right time. But this was in 1975. 
And while the James Bay and Northern Quebec Agreement was huge and remade the landscape of how Canada, its provinces, and First Nations interacted, it was, in many ways, just the beginning. So after that, uh, when all was signed, and then that's when the real fight started. Pesamit is fighting against giants who have huge amount of money. Is the contract in jeopardy? The contract is in jeopardy. If, if by that you mean, is it possible that the contract could be canceled? Absolutely. Hydro-Quebec had no, had no option but to cancel the project. Hydro-Quebec and the First Nations learn and adapt. That's next week on Outside In. Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown. And me, Hannah McCarthy, with help from Taylor Quimby, Jimmy Gutierrez, Ben Henry, Nick Capodice, Daniel Barrick, and Maureen McMurray. Special thanks this week to Justine Gagnon for sharing some of her graduate thesis with us. And I can just tell that your head is simply swimming from all of the information we've been giving you. So why not head to outsideinradio.org so that you can see some of these things that you've been hearing about. We've got a map showing what the Manicouagan River looked like before and after hydro development, and photos from life on these water bodies today and historically, too. Music from this week's episode came to us from Blue Dot Sessions. And our themes, plural there, are by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. 